0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice, telling His side of your story. The heroes, or rather the heroines of our last episode, Deborah and Yael, are quite obviously not men, which, according to their habitat standards, strictly excludes them from anything but housework and childcare and certainly excludes them from the weighty affairs of state. Well, just because their habitat excludes them doesn't mean I do. Got that? A lot of the things folks take pot shots at me for are practices that stem solely from the humans and their habitats as we move along. I am, of course, always working on human maturity in general as part of the plan's implementation over time. However, you all are mighty slow learners, resulting in a protracted, gradual process. But every now and then, I work in a touchstone like Deborah and Yael here, or like Rahab before them, that points to where we are headed. You know, that part where men and women are both created in our image with equal beauty and favor and all. So take a tip from Deborah and Yael and dare to step outside your habitat's strictures when you're following my call. Back to Judges. In quick order, the book establishes that cycle of faithfulness, then faithlessness, we've seen and talked about before, and we'll see and talk about again over and over. Israel is like someone who just can't stay on a diet, but doesn't want to be overweight. They'll diet a while, lose the weight, then start thinking they can reward themselves with an extra snack or two because they're doing so well. And they'll lose their discipline entirely and gain all the weight back, and it's a vicious cycle. You know that cycle, whether your battle is with food, drugs, drink, porn, social media, whatever sin is insidious by nature and knows the temptation is most successful when it starts small just one scoop of plain vanilla ice cream just one more spoonful of whatever dish whether it's real or metaphorical that you hear gently calling your name yes it's a bit of an oversimplification but it's a manageable metaphor for israel's journey So Deborah, Barak, Yael, and Israel have victory over Sisera and Jabin, and the nation sinks up with me and stays plugged in for another nice round forty years. But, of course, my naughty children slip into the same downward spiral, taking me and all our history together for granted, becoming enamored again in the interesting new deities their neighbors are worshipping. And again, as the great parent, I let them learn what the neighboring deities are made of. If they are so enthralled by their neighbors, in this case neighbors from due east, then I'll let them get a real good look at them. When I withdraw my supernatural protection from Israel's eastern boundaries, the Amalekites and Midianites sweep in on regular raids. Uh, These Midianites would not be the Kenites, though they originally came from Midian. The rest of the Midianites, uh, the ones who stayed home to guard their territory, have no soft place in their heart for Moses' people any longer. Clearly, hence the raids. They're like locusts and grab everything and anything they can. Grain, livestock, sports equipment... It's so bad that the Israelites have to hide their goods and animals in caves and thresh their grain in unlikely places if they're going to have any for their own sustenance. Now, we've shifted to Judges 6 now. Which sets the stage for the next judge in this period, good old Gideon. Things have gotten so bad that in order for his family to have bread, Gideon's beating out their wheat in a wine press the last place you'd look for wheat and nobody's making any wine these days, so the wine press is actually a pretty clever place to cover up your threshing. Once again, an angel of Yahweh and I myself are interchangeable in the account of my visit to Gideon. Now, while Gideon is going to play an important role in Israel's life, it's not going to be on the same level of Joshua or Moses. However, Just as there's a lot about Joshua's calling and leadership that echoes Moses, so Gideon has some noticeable parallels, too. Gideon is not herding sheep like Moses, but he's about his family's business at the time of my visit. Also, once I put forth my official, you're the one to deliver Israel from their enemy, Gideon's first reaction echoes Moses. Who, me? You don't want me. Moses pointed to, among other things, his poor speech when I was telling him he'd deliver Israel from Egypt. Now that I am telling Gideon he'll deliver Israel from Midian, the wheat beater says, But I'm the scrawniest kid from the scrawniest family in our entire tribe of Manasseh. To prove the veracity of my presence and promise, I gave Moses a few signs involving his staff and skin. The snake and leprosy, remember? Likewise, I assure Gideon here with a sign, not the one you're thinking of yet. After our initial conversation, he asks me to hang around until he comes back, then he goes away. He takes his sweet old time before coming back, but only because he's been cooking a goat and unleavened bread for me, complete with a pot of gravy. He thinks I am a lesser being still and expects me to eat it. "'but I have him put it all on a flat-topped rock "'and tell him to pour the gravy over all of it, "'and everything's good and soaked. "'So when I reach out and touch the food with my staff, "'the fact that fire springs up from the now very wet rock "'and eats up all the soaking wet meat and bread, "'it's clear that this was no spark from the rock's flint episode, "'but a bona fide supernatural carbonizing event.' Gideon recognizes my presence and figures he's next to be toasted, so to speak, but I extend my peace to him, and he puts up an altar to me there and then. And speaking of altars, my first order of business for Gideon has to do with another altar. Before that, though, think about this. Altars are obviously intrinsically symbolic things that point to the deity that's worshipped at them. But Gideon's early actions here carry even more symbolic weight. His first action is to raise an altar to me, symbolizing a return to worshipping me alone, Yahweh, the one who delivered Israel from Egypt and did everything else worth remembering. Gideon's next action, at my command, is to tear down the local altar to Baal and cut down the pole honoring Baal's female counterpart then cleanse that whole site by offering a bowl to me on it using the wood from the former totem. Start with the good, worshipping me, and then wipe out the bad. Always the best order to do things in. If you try to wipe out the bad stuff without turning to me first, it just ain't going to work nearly as well. As it is, Gideon believes me enough to do what I command but he fears the people enough to do it in the dark of night, the tearing down Baal's altar and all, so that when they wake up and find smoking remains where their hedge-our-bets-with-Baal altar used to be, the people are pretty ticked off. This was not a navy seal op by any means, so the trail leads quickly to Gideon, and the state of the townsfolk is betrayed by their reaction. They call for his life. However, his dad, Joash, who was mighty complicit in Baal worship, let me just say. It was dad's altar to Baal that the whole town used, so much for Gideon's family being so scrawny. And further to that, Gideon also had the family's ten servants help him in his nocturnal mission. Joash delivers one of my favorite little speeches in the whole story. Can you hear yourself and what you're saying right now? You're standing up for Baal. Standing up for Baal against Yahweh. Really? You're the ones that ought to be punished here, not Gideon. You know what? If Baal's a god, then let him fight his own fight. If he's upset about his altar getting pulled down, let's see if he shows up to stand up for himself. Uh, Our paraphrasing of Judges 6.31, Joash prescribes the same tactic we used in Egypt, something that'll have its peak fulfillment against the same non-entity, also known as Baal, someday. Obviously, Baal's a no-show, and Gideon instantly gets a cool nickname that conveys the thought that Baal's afraid of him, or at the very least that Gideon is not afraid of Baal. Word travels fast, and the Midianites and Amorites over to the east are mighty perturbed that Gideon's brought such dishonor on their god. So they gather their troops together to teach Gideon and his people a lesson. In the meantime, Gideon's clan, chastened by his dad's speech, gets over itself and answers the call of Gideon's trumpet call to arms, as do the entire tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali basically the northern half of the entire nation, over 30,000 fighting men. And now comes the part some of you have been waiting for, the fleece. In spite of the sign and success I've given him so far, Gideon is facing a bit more than dealing with locals upset by his sanctified vandalism. He's stepping into war here. Just to make sure I am with him then, he asks for another sign. I gave Moses more than one, so Gideon gets a pass here, too, though I have to admit that, like any parent, having to repeat myself to Gideon, or anyone for that matter, riles me, riles me quite a bit. Gideon is not going to be victorious in the coming battles because I jump through the fleecy hoops he's about to set up for me. He's going to be victorious because I already said I would give him the victory— So as you listen on, please do not search for some equivalent to Gideon's test that you can pull on me in your context. If Gideon is any kind of example in what follows, he's a bad one. Don't get me wrong. If you don't know what to do, please ask me for guidance. I've already given Gideon guidance. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's just afraid. Being afraid is fine. Ask me for courage, though, instead of asking me for tricks like this. Honestly, there's enough to this trick. We'll cover it next time. In the meantime, keep walking along with me, on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Alexander Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyikerart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.